0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman Sachs. As 2017 begins, investors are trying to position themselves for new opportunities and new risks in what's sure to be a year of transition for countries all around the world. My guest today is Charmeen mosavar Romani, the Chief Investment Officer of Private Wealth Management here at Goldman Sachs. She makes the case in a new report for U.S. equity preeminence, amidst an uncertain global and domestic backdrop. The report's called Half Full. Welcome, Charmaine. Thank you. So since the trough of the global financial crisis, you've consistently, very consistently, emphasized U.S. preeminence, the idea that the United States offers the best opportunities for investors, and you've advised clients to maintain a strategic overweight to U.S. equities. U.S. equities have been more expensive than current levels only 10% of the time in the post-World War II era. In the outlook half full, you continue to recommend staying the course. What drives the case, your case, for remaining invested in U.S. equities even at these historic price levels?
1: There are two factors that we focus on in terms of this recommendation. First, the general economic backdrop. So we are looking at the U.S. economy that is growing and will actually have better growth rates in 2017 than 2016. We look at all other developed economies, and with the exception of the UK, partly driven by Brexit, we expect broad-based growth in other countries. So a generally favorable economic backdrop in developed economies. In emerging market countries, we think places like Russia and Brazil that were in recession will have a modest recovery, and we're looking at emerging markets in aggregate, a modest improvement. So generally a very favorable economic backdrop. Then we look at policy from a monetary policy perspective and fiscal policy. And we think both will be favorable. Monetary policy will continue to be favorable. We're going to have basically negative real rates in most of the major developed economies. So even in the U.S., where the Fed will probably raise rates two to three times, real rates adjusted for inflation will still be negative, and that is basically easy monetary policy. With the exception of the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, We think the balance sheet in major economies, let's say, like the ECB, the European Central Bank, or the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, will be increasing. So generally, continued supportive monetary policy. On the fiscal side, we're seeing a shift in sentiment. Austerity is out and fiscal stimulus is in. So whether it's in the U.S., whether we end up with tax cuts or infrastructure or some blend, we're talking about fiscal stimulus in Europe, we're talking about fiscal stimulus in Japan, So basically, we're in an environment where fiscal stimulus will also be supportive. So when you have an environment with a very favorable economic and policy backdrop, that tends to be very good for equities, specifically for U.S. equities. The probability of a recession is low, in our view, let's say 15 percent in the U.S. And when you have an economic expansion, the probability of positive returns is about 86 percent, so very high. With that kind of a profile, why not stay invested in U.S. equities, especially when we know that valuation alone is not a great indicator of going underweight equities? In fact, you could look at history. If we were to go out of equities, let's say in the mid-90s, when U.S. equities entered what we call the 10th decile of valuation, to your point about being only more expensive 10% of the time, one would have left just under 200% returns on the table. So it's pretty significant. Now that's not at all what we're expecting. We're not expecting that kind of a bubble in U.S. equities, but it's just a very good warning that one should not get out of equities too early. So that's the one major pillar for our view. And the second pillar is our theme of U.S. preeminence. We've had a very strong view since the trough of the financial crisis that U.S. is preeminent and the gap is widening. And with that backdrop, why not have your core assets in U.S. equities and stay invested? Whether we're talking about the strength from an economic perspective, whether we're talking about innovation, whether we're talking about R&D, whether we're talking about immigration, whatever factors we look at, the gap between the U.S. and the rest of the world is actually widening. And even when we look at, for example, the oil sector, to think about the U.S. producing as much as 9, 10 million barrels a day, it's actually phenomenal oil and natural gas liquids, so it's pretty significant. So our view of U.S. preeminence also supports that
0: argument. This recovery is the slowest we've seen since World War II, but you also say what the recovery has lacked in strength, it's partially made up for in its length. So could you walk us through some of the glass-half-full facts that give you confidence about the strength of this recovery?
1: Our view has been that from the global financial crisis onwards, people have been too pessimistic about the United States and too optimistic about other parts of the world, especially China. We've had this theme that people look at history, you look at the data, and people have had this view that, oh, America's on the decline. We saw this- The the
0: empire. Yes. Yes,
1: we saw this in the Vietnam War, we saw this at the time of Sputnik, we saw this at the time of the rise of Japan in the late 80s, early 90s, before they had their financial crisis. So this theme has occurred many times, and it occurred again in 2009. And our theme has been people are actually wrong about this decline of the American economy or American power or the end of the American century, that actually U.S. preeminence is not only intact, but the gap between the U.S. and the rest of the world is widening. We actually had our outlook a few years ago when we specifically went through everything from GDP per capita, innovation. We went through so many different factors to show how the gap is actually widening. You're looking at earnings per share, the health of the financial system with the incredible deleveraging. So when you think about U.S. preeminence and if you have a base case of it being intact, that actually pushes us towards being more comfortable with U.S. assets for our clients.
0: Some people point out that the U.S. working population is declining. There's a lot of external shocks that have prevented the United States from reaching a higher gear. How do you take on those charges, those folks who are seeing the glasses half empty?
1: So when people talk about all the concerns about this recovery, they will point to the fact that this recovery, since its trough, has been growing at about just a little over 2%. And the average of all post-World War II recoveries has been about four, so half the pace. And we basically suggest people look at a number of factors and put this recovery in context. So one very important factor has been that after such a strong global financial crisis, whether it's the household, whether it's the financial sector, people have focused on very much improving the balance sheet. What's very unique about this recovery, compared to recoveries in the post-World War II period, the household has actually delevered, and increased their savings rate and substantially improved their net worth relative to their income. So if you look at a chart of that, you could see how much more they have saved in this recovery versus past recoveries where they actually have dissaved. The same is true of the U.S. economy in aggregate. So what has been somewhat unique about this recovery is the extent of deleveraging that has occurred. And so that has been a drag. One could say that's half empty, or you could actually say that's really half full. The U.S. economy is really well prepared to take any external shocks. So we think that as people have built their balance sheet, especially households, they will start to spend more. So consumption should actually do much better going forward, given how much they have been saving for the last several years. In addition, we do look at demographics. And people who talk about demographics being an issue are correct. Demographics in the US are not as good as they were in the 50s and 60s. And when we're looking at the size of the labor force growth rates, as well as the labor force participation, that has been a drag. In fact, there have been some very interesting studies that show if you look at the recovery per number of person working in the labor force, it's actually been on par with other recoveries. So there's no doubt that demographics has been a factor. And there's a limited number of things one can do about demographics. The baby boomers retiring affects labor participation, and there's not much one can do about that. One thing that's unique about the U.S., which was actually quite surprising, is that prime age male participation in the labor force is one of the worst in OECD countries. Only Italy and Israel actually have worse numbers. And part of that is the limited training, a lot of incarceration, and so that actually affects the the participation of males. So there's some things one can do there to improve that. But this demographics is definitely part of the whole argument about secular stagnation that some of the more prominent economists have out there.
0: You've also talked, though, about the capacity for further growth and productivity. What are some of the considerations that give you this optimism about productivity? Because a lot of the debate about secular stagnation has really focused on this lack of productivity growth.
1: Early on a few years ago, we pointed out where the term secular stagnation came from, and it came from Alvin Hansen in the 1930s. And interestingly enough, even though people use the term a lot, Alvin Hansen was actually proven to be wrong. He was very negative about innovation. He was negative about demographics, and he said, there are no new markets to conquer, and so we're going to have secular stagnation, and he was proven wrong. This issue of productivity has been debated for a long time. In fact, some of the more prominent naysayers of productivity and the American decline were saying the exact same things in the early 90s, publishing books about the decline of America even then. The rise of Japan. Mm. And the same people are now talking about the decline in productivity. What's incredible is if you look at a history of productivity growth in the U.S., you see that it completely moves up and down in, let's say, 10, 15-year, 20-year windows. So you can have a window where productivity is very high, let's say about 3%. This is productivity growth. Or you can have a 10-year window where it's very low, like we've recently had, where it's just over 1%. Some of that might be real. Some of that could actually be due to mismeasurement. In fact, our own colleague, Jan Hotzius, has written a fair amount about what he thinks is mismeasurement in communications, information technology, hardware, and software. And if you think that there is mismeasurement, for example, is our smartphone priced appropriately given the huge improvements? Are we measuring that? In effect, it's a deflationary Factor because you have so much more capability, so much more firepower in that phone. Replaces Are we measuring so many that? other
0: devices too.
1: Are we measuring that correctly? And if we're not, then maybe real GDP is actually understated. And he estimates the numbers to be about 0.7 percent. So that alone would change the perception of this recovery from people who say it's half empty to saying no, it's actually half full. So that's very important. So both the productivity issue as well as the mismeasurement issue, are two things where we looked at the data. We've read a lot of very interesting academic papers, practitioners. One of the people we've quoted in the report is Hal Varian from Google. He's the chief economist there, and he has some terrific examples of why he thinks there's also significant mismeasurement in GDP because of all the impact of technology
0: and the Internet. So we've got a custom in the United States to very low subdued inflation. People don't worry about it very much. Are there some risks to fiscal stimulus at this point if we see it here in the United States as President-elect Trump has proposed? And how do you advise clients to prepare themselves for the prospects of some inflation?
1: We have had a view of disinflation for a very long time. And we actually don't see anything over the horizon that would make us concerned about inflation. On a global basis, there's tremendous excess capacity, whether we're talking about labor and looking at the labor pool on a global basis, whether we're talking about old economy, heavy industry, or whether we're talking about new economy, there's a lot of excess capacity on a global basis. And so our view is that it's difficult to imagine any major inflationary impulse from any sector. If you think about inflation, either there has to be an excess of demand, And on a global basis, we're concerned that there's a shortage of demand. Countries like China aren't consuming enough. Countries like Germany are not consuming enough. And in terms of, from a cost-push perspective, where do we have a shortage where anybody has incredible negotiating power to raise prices? And so in aggregate, we're actually not concerned about inflation at all. And we don't think interest rates will be rising rapidly. We think it's going to be a very slow, gradual rise in interest rates.
0: There are risks, the glass is after all half full, and you note in the report that there are a myriad of global risks. So what are some of the risks you're most concerned about as we head into the new year, and do you think any of them could be large enough to derail this recovery and the bull market?
1: We think of risks in three buckets. We have the high probability, high risk issues. We have low probability, low impact, and we have high probability but uncertain impact. So if we think of, for example, something like Fed tightening or the probability of a recession, if they were to happen in terms of a recession or very disruptive Fed tightening, that would be a high-impact event. But we think it's actually a very low-probability event. The same is true, for example, of European populism. People talk about it. We think it's an issue, but we don't think that we're going to have a major surprise in Germany, for example, with their upcoming elections. So we think populism is on the rise, it's affecting the discussion, but it's not actually going to be something that's going to create a huge risk and derail the U.S. recovery. Then we have the high probability but uncertain impact or low impact areas, such as, for example, all the geopolitical concerns. For example, North Korean belligerence. One of our external advisors on geopolitical issues actually had warned us as we were discussing the risks that every time there's a new president, either in the United States or in South Korea, the North Koreans do something provocative. And here, true to form, on December 31st, there was announcement that they're going to be testing their intercontinental ballistic missiles. And obviously, President-elect Trump tweeted right back. So there are those kinds of things that will occur. It's highly likely that we'll see these types of headlines, tensions in the Middle East, cyber security issues, terrorism here and there. But our base case is that we cannot anticipate a big cyber attack. That could be high impact, but our base case is that we're going to continue to see what we have seen for the last several years. And then we have the category of high risk, high impact. And our greatest concern there is China. And our concern is twofold. One is China itself submerging under their debt burden and huge capital outflows. And the other is in terms of trade wars or geopolitical
0: issues with the U.S. So
1: those would be areas where if something were to happen, it could be a high impact.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about China. You've been a pretty outspoken critic of those who've been overly optimistic about investing in China. So what are the red flags for you in China?
1: The same way we think people have underestimated the US, we think generally people have overestimated China. If one steps back for a minute and when people make the comparisons between the two countries, their GDPs may be large and the two largest in the world, but US is one of the richest countries in the world. Its GDP per capita is the largest of any major country. China is one of the poorest countries in the world with some of the lowest GDP per capita of any country in the world. And when we look at the issues, their debt burden, is huge and it's been growing so rapidly. The Bank for International Settlements has an incredible measure. We think it's a very useful measure to look at. It's called the credit to GDP ratio gap. It shows how much credit relative to GDP has been growing relative to its trend growth. And they have sort of an elevated risk and a very high risk. The high risk area is when that gap is over 10. China at the second quarter of 2016 was at 30%, and that's the latest data that's available. U.S. went into financial crisis in 2009 when the number breached 10 and was at 12.4%. So if a country like the United States with this incredible wealth, highest GDP per capita, resilient economy, diverse economy, less export-oriented and dependent on others. Open capital
0: markets too. Open
1: capital markets has a crisis, How can China avoid a crisis where every country that has reached these levels of credit to GDP gap have had a crisis, Spain, Japan, the U.K.? And this is data going back 30, 40 years. And so our base case is that if you look at that exhibit, at some point China is going to have a problem. And whether it's this year or a couple of years from now, we think it's going to be an issue. So this year we have a low probability, but sometime over the next three years. In addition, they have significant capital outflows. Again, that's in sharp contrast to the U.S. They've had about $1.3 trillion of capital outflows. The U.S. is one of the largest sources of inflows of foreign direct investment. People want to invest in the U.S., and in terms of flows, it has had the largest flows between 2011 and 2015, and one of the largest stocks of foreign direct investments. So it has all the factors to help it, and yet the U.S. didn't avoid a financial crisis. Why does anybody think China will avoid such a crisis?
0: So what might a hard landing mean for the United States? If China were to, whether it's one year, two year, five years out, have an issue and not be able to withstand it. The U.S. has very little direct exposure to China, but how might it affect U.S. markets and the U.S. economy? One of
1: the things we've been talking about a lot actually for the last couple of years is that if you look at the direct economic relationship with China in terms of, let's say, bank assets, in terms of exports, in terms of profits, it's actually very limited. Less than 1%. So in terms of bank assets lending to China, it's less than 1% of bank assets. If we're looking at profits uh, for corporate America, it's less than 1%. So when we're looking at these factors, exports are less than 1% of GDP. 6 tends to be more precise. So very negligible. And if that were the only factor, it should not have an impact. But through the Financial Conditions Index, again, something that the economics team at Goldman Sachs has designed, We actually do see impact because the market responds to it, the markets go down. So if the equity market were to drop significantly because of concerns about China, that's an indirect way that would affect the U.S. It would affect consumer confidence. It would affect CEO confidence. It would affect capital expenditures. So it could have a market sentiment impact. We're hoping that as time goes by and more and more investors recognize that from a direct economic impact, there shouldn't be such a significant reaction that people would be better informed and wouldn't overreact. Interestingly enough, last year, when China switched from having the dollar as the only reference point, they said they were going to look at a basket, and this is in late 2015, early 2016, the S&P declined quite significantly and we had a lot of volatility in the market. This time, they did the exact same thing at the end of 2016, And it was completely ignored by the market. So maybe people are realizing that actually from a direct perspective, they don't need to be as concerned about the impact of a hard landing in China
0: in terms of the US. There's also some chance, given the new administration and some of the rhetoric in the campaign, that relationships could sour over trade, geopolitics, some other issue that we haven't yet forecast. Are you concerned about the trajectory of the relationship between the US and China, or do you think it will work itself out?
1: When we look at the relationship, there's so many areas where you could have some heated tensions. You could have heated rhetoric. It's not clear exactly how China would respond to some of the trade actions. They will react initially from everything we know. They will react in increments. But if things were to ratchet up from the U.S. side in terms of trade issues, they would also respond in kind. We also have, obviously, the South China Sea, and there's always risk of an accident. There was an article about how close, for example, airplanes have been over Syrian airspace, U.S. Mm -hmm. airplanes and Russian airplanes. Well, the same thing is happening in the South China Sea. We already saw the incident with the drones, for example. So there is a risk there that things do get out of control. Our base case is that they will not, that having a slightly tougher stance with China is appropriate. In fact, the Council of Foreign Relations published a very interesting report a little bit over a year ago, talking about how the U.S. really does need to rethink its strategy towards China, whether it's because of cybersecurity, whether it's because of military issues, or whether it's because of trade issues. And so there will be periods of rising tension, and we do think there will be bouts of volatility in the marketplace, but eventually things will work themselves out.
0: You also mentioned the rise of populism in Europe and the potential for that to surface during the German elections. What are some of the signposts you and your team are looking for to see where Europe might be headed and whether there is concern that it may take a dramatic turn?
1: There are some areas we think will create some headlines, but maybe will not matter. So there's uncertainty about what happens in Italy. Will they have some kind of call for an election this year or the next? But with all the turmoil that occurred in Italy, with all the issues in the banking sector, after a while, the markets become more immune to it and it has less impact on the U.S. So that would be an uncertainty. And we're thinking probably not that important. We think Brexit will be much more of a local issue. It's going to be a lot harder on the UK than any other part of the world, including the US and the Eurozone. And we think the Eurozone will take a very tough stance because they don't want others in Europe to be encouraged to follow in the footsteps of the British government. So then the referendum. Then you're basically left with Germany. We don't think there are major issues there. We think Chancellor Merkel... We'll have a tougher election, but still overall, when we're looking at it, we don't think there are going to be any surprises. The one area where there's a small probability of a surprise would be in France. But based on everything we look at and all the data, it looks like the final candidates will end up being somebody like Fionn and Le Pen, and the consensus is that Fionn would win, But obviously, people were wrong about Brexit and people were wrong about Donald Trump. But from everything we understand, that's not the case in France.
0: So given this backdrop, you've ratcheted down your return expectations for the next one to five years, a little lower, basically because of higher valuations and a little bit increased uncertainty. You write in this report that there are compelling reasons why clients remain invested, despite that expectation of more modest returns. Why is that? We've
1: had views about modest returns now for several years. So as valuations have gone up, we've told clients that, looking forward, we should expect lower returns. We published something about this in 2010. We published something about it in 2013. And just because one has lower returns expected doesn't mean one should get out of the market. There are several reasons why this matters. First of all, there is some upside. We actually have a higher probability to the upside than the downside. So if that upside were to materialize, people would be looking at reasonably attractive returns. Another argument is that there are not many good alternatives out there. Sitting in cash basically is going to give you probably less than 1% return for the year. Bonds, we expect somewhere between 0 and 1% returns. Whether you're talking about short municipal bonds, treasury bonds, you're looking at very, very modest returns. So when we're looking at a client's core assets, actually our highest expected return in terms of safe core assets would be U.S. equities. We're not talking, for example, about emerging market equities, where we might have a slightly higher expected return, but a huge amount of uncertainty and volatility. So when we're looking at core assets, our view is it's one of the best asset classes out there. We think there's some good upside. For U.S. taxable clients, we say the hurdle of having to pay all the taxes, state, and federal taxes on your capital gains is pretty significant. So one has to be very cautious and be very pessimistic to want to sell one's assets, pay taxes, realize all those capital gains, and then reinvest at lower rates. One has to have a lot of conviction. So when we look at that range of things to consider, our view is that it's best to stay invested at this point.
0: So you talk a lot about history and using history as a guide for investing decisions. Are there analogous periods in history that have helped shape your views for this year?
1: The issue of the decline of America is clearly an area where one does need to look at history and have historical perspective. So that's one example where we continuously raise issues that give people perspective. You had mentioned productivity. Productivity is another very good example where you need historical perspective to see that productivity moves in cycles. And just because we've been in a 10-year window with low productivity growth rates, doesn't tell you anything about what the next 10 years can be like. So that's very important. We talked about mismeasurement, recognizing that actually the Bureau of Labor Statistics look at the data, they realize they need to change how data is measured, they need to change how GDP is measured and it evolves, gives us a sense that we're not saying something that is such an outlier that maybe there is some mismeasurement. So in fact, history, we think, is a very, very useful guide. It may not exactly repeat itself, but we do warn our clients that if you hear, oh, this time is different, this is very special... This is different, that people should really have their antennas up and be very cautious about that. Thank you, Sharmeen.
0: Provocative as always. Very interesting to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges with Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was recorded on January 10th, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition... The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.